Croeso. Welcome to the second episode of the Leanne Wood podcast. I hope that this podcast will contribute to a different kind of politics, where we can discuss matters not covered widely enough by the mainstream media and listen to voices we don't hear enough from. In this episode, we explore a topic that for some is a niche issue, but for those affected by it can be a matter of life or death. This podcast episode is dedicated to all those incredibly courageous trans people out there who are living a life that others object to. All power to all of you. We're going to talk about trans rights. Crash Wrigley is a trans campaigner living in Cardiff, previously worked at Stonewall Cymru and is director of Cardiff Trans Singers. Crash, can you explain why trans rights that have been built up over years are under threat and why they're under threat now at this time? What is it that's changed and what is going on? Hmm. Well, I mean, essentially what I'd say is that we are in the middle of a particularly fierce campaign that's been going on for a few years now where anti-trans campaigners have deliberately tried to encourage a sense of fear, suspicion and hostility towards trans people. And that includes the idea that sort of any steps which are taken to include and respect trans people involve putting other people at risk and that at various points sort of it's implied that trans people are delusional or aggressive or, or menacing. And it's possible that if you're listening to this, that some of that has passed you by. Um, but if you're a trans person who's been personally affected by it, that campaign's been really, really visible. And it took off in around 2017, um, mainly in response to what at the time was potentially a, a positive piece of progress that came out under Theresa May when she was prime minister. She announced she was gonna reform a piece of legislation called the Gender Recognition Act, which is the piece of law that allows trans people to change their legal gender and get a new birth certificate. Now that act had been passed in 2004, it's widely considered to be outdated now and the process it sets up for trans people to use if they want to change their legal gender and get a new birth certificate. It's very, very difficult to follow. Um, it implies that being trans is a mental illness and requires you to have a psychiatric diagnosis. All of these things that are really out of line with how we'd think about what it means to be trans in in this modern time you know that it's it's, it's not it's not an illness that needs to be diagnosed so when Theresa May announced that the government was sort of going to go ahead with this reform to the Gender Recognition Act then these campaigns really took off and a lot of it was essentially scaremongering saying well if you allow this reform then these terrible things will happen and it focused on issues like any man will be able to decide that he's a woman one day and walk into a woman's toilet or women's changing rooms and, and do terrible things all of that scaremongering but was very speculative hypothetical didn't really have any basis 
in reality and certainly hasn't been borne out by the experiences of countries where these types of reforms have been in place for years. But nevertheless, it sort of set the tone for this hostile public debate about trans rights. And that's continued ever since. When Boris Johnson became the prime minister, he roundly (laughs) dropped these proposed reforms, but the discussion hasn't stopped. It stayed at this tenor. And so in terms of whether trans rights are under threat now, which was your question, the sort of the basic legal framework that we have in terms of, you know, we have the the Gender Recognition Act as it still stands. We have a means, albeit quite a difficult and degrading one, of changing our legal gender, provided that, you know, we're over the age of 18 and that we have two options to choose from male and female. There's no alternative option for people who identify outside of those categories. And we also have the Equality Act, of course. And the Equality Act protects trans people from discrimination and harassment in a wide range of contexts, in schools and in workplaces and accessing goods and services. I mean, those are really, really important rights that have fundamentally changed how trans people can be able to play a part in public life. And I think that legal framework is, is, is pretty secure um, at the moment. Like they're sort of always on, on tenterhooks, like what will the Tories do next in Westminster? Some people worried that maybe they'll try and take advantage of the anxieties that exist around trans rights at the moment and try and push something through like a sort of modern section 28 for trans people as they did for for gay people in in the 80s under Thatcher. Well, the debate sounds very similar. Potentially that's a risk. Well, it it does, you know, when you think about how gay people were talked about in the 80s and 90s and and this whole, they're all perverts, they're a a threat, they can't be trusted to be around children, they want to convert children because they can't have any of their own. And this kind of speculation, you know, that, that there's sort of some sort of hypothetical danger that exists in accepting people. I think when people nowadays think about how gay people are treated in society, they can really easily call out those myths for what they are, that that you don't have to worry about lesbians being allowed into dressing rooms as if they pose some scary sexual assault risk for people, and people would see through those myths these days. But with trans rights, we're not there, and the media often repeats almost word for word the same scaremongering tactics than we saw in the 80s. What's more concerning to me is not, will the government pass an act that gets rid of trans people's rights? It's it's more, what does the... What effect is this media climate and this climate in public discourse having in trans people? And, you know, we've seen things like hate crime go up in recent years against trans people. We see people who hold significant institutional power in our society openly expressing anti-trans views. And all that, I think, is, is what worries me in terms of trans rights being under threat or being undermined in the UK. You're absolutely right, because these debates have real repercussions. Trans women have used women's toilets for years and years and years. Yet now there's a question mark over that. And if Mm. you're a trans person and you're out in public, what are you meant to do? It's intimidating. It's frightening. Mm. It can bring on anxiety, especially for for younger trans people. So it is a real problem and it does have uh, real repercussions 
You touched on the issues facing young people. There was a court Mm. case recently which overturned a previous court case which effectively prevented puberty blockers being given to young people. Can you explain why the original court findings were such a problem and why the overturning of the case is so important to young trans people now? Yeah, well, in a nutshell, it's it's a massive problem because it, it was a massive problem, the original decision, because puberty blockers are often vitally important medical care for, for trans young people. And the idea that the court couldn't decide that it had the power to issue guidance that made it almost impossible for uh, trans young people to get access to puberty blockers when they really needed them was a huge problem. I think lots of people are not really familiar with trans people's medical care and how it works. And so when they hear about things for the first time, they don't really have a context to understand it. But puberty blockers, I mean, they have like a long standing clinical use, uh, like have been used like for decades, I think since the 60s, for children who start puberty particularly early, where that causes distress for them. And so what they basically do is that they halt the process of going through puberty for as long as you take the blockers. And then when you come off them at a later date, then you would go through puberty as you would have done. But a few years later, perhaps when you're in a more developmentally ready to deal with it. And then for a couple of decades, they've been used for for the treatment of trans young people and the reason why they're used is that if you're a trans young person and you start going through puberty that can trigger particularly intense feelings of distress and and it can seriously affect the people's mental health sometimes to the point where you know people are self-harming people are feeling suicidal and the reason for that is that people are experiencing gender dysphoria you know that distress that's caused when people perceive a mismatch between their identity and what their body looks like or what's going on with their body. If you think about, you know, a trans boy who who understands his identity as a boy, wants to live his life as a boy or as a man, and then is going through puberty, starting to have irreversible changes happening to his body, growing breasts, things like that, and knowing that these are going to be things that he carries with the rest of his life unless he has to go and have surgery later at some future future date you can see how watching your body change in a way that fundamentally goes against your identity and how you understand your own body could lead to quite serious feelings of distress and similarly you know with trans girls getting taller getting facial hair broadening your shoulders lots of those uh, deepening your voice lots of those changes can't even really be reversed when you grow up like if you've got if you're a trans woman with a very deep voice there aren't lots of treatments that are, are very easily accessible to reverse that and so having that way on you and knowing that something can be done about it but it's being withheld from you you can see the kind of distress that that can cause so that's why puberty blockers are used and the idea for them is that they give young people a breathing space because if what what they do is just halt the onset of puberty they sort of keep you in in limbo as it were and they can do that for a few years so that perhaps when you're a bit older and more ready to make a more permanent decision about your um, medical care you haven't already gone through puberty and gone through all those uh, negative effects so that's the idea behind puberty blockers and what's what's reassuring 
that the Court of Appeal overturned this initial decision that basically made it almost impossible for young people to access them, is that the Court of Appeal kind of said that the High Court went where it shouldn't have gone because it's not its job to assess conflicting medical evidence. That's not the responsibility of the court. That's the responsibility of doctors to use their medical expertise to decide what the right course of action is for an individual patient and to assess whether that patient is capable of providing consent to the procedure. And that's fundamental to how we consider everyone's medical needs in our society, isn't it? It's a matter for them and their doctor. Or if they're a child, it might be a matter for them and their family and their doctor. But it shouldn't be other people's opinions about the morals or the ethics of a particular course of treatment that decides whether they get the treatment they need when a doctor using their medical expertise and using what is a pretty firm international clinical consensus around the benefit of puberty blockers for trans young people in certain circumstances and all the guidelines that come with that you know that is for doctors to decide and not for just members of the public or even courts to kind of weigh in and have an opinion on. So that court case was some really welcome good news in a context and an atmosphere where there's been lots of bad news and and bitter blows for trans people. We've seen a lot of rows on social media and in political parties as well. Some of those rows have been quite difficult for many people to make sense of. It's as though the debate is taking place in some sort of code that lots of people don't have access to. Do you have any advice as to how trans rights and the threat to those rights can be debated without the high levels of toxicity that we see? Yeah, this idea that people are talking in a code, I think what a lot of people are effectively doing is kind of wading in halfway through an argument. And, you know, it's very easy to do that and just not understand what's going on. Like, why are people angry? What is the fuss about? And essentially, that's what people are doing in a kind of meta sense. So it doesn't surprise me. And I can sympathise with people who have that impression when they see some of these discussions, comment wars online. And if you're a trans person who's lived through the last few years, you probably have a very different perspective on what is being meant and, and what is going on in these debates, because you know the background and other people don't. Thinking about the toxicity. So one thing I'd say is that I think social media dynamics often push people towards polarization or more toxic interactions. And and that's because it's a different way of having conversations. The dialogue is all in public. You've got strangers dealing with each other. There's no sort of expectation that people are going to take things in good faith. It's very easy for stuff to be repeated out of context. You can bring other people in and sort of incite pylons. There are all those group dynamics. And I like, I think there are lots of good things about what social media has done. And in particular, kind of empowering people who otherwise wouldn't really have a voice that would get listened to, to be listened to. And for trans people, it's been really important because it's brought loads of trans people together like I remember in, in 2015, sort of 2016, trans people started a hashtag on Twitter that was called trans dog fail, which was about all the negligent, often quite abusive experiences that trans people were having with the gender identity clinics as they were trying to access their healthcare. And before social media, all those people are kind of on their own and not necessarily talking to each other and making those connections. And you can see how social media can can combat that isolating effect and bring people together to campaign to achieve positive change. But obviously, with the good comes the bad. With trans rights, I would say people who are new to this need to con on to the fact that a lot of people who talk about trans rights on the Internet are bots. 
sock puppets, bad faith actors. Like you cannot take what people are posting as fake value. Lots of these are anonymous accounts. You don't know who's behind them. They might not be acting sincerely. They might be acting in ways that deliberately generate controversy. And I would just encourage people, especially people who are just not so familiar with Twitter, to look at some of these accounts, especially if you don't know who's saying something with a high degree of skepticism before taking what they say as at face value and and like we've seen that like you don't know who these bots are like they could be transphobes sometimes I think it's you know it could be Russian intelligence (laughs) you don't know that is a genuine issue and then the other thing I remind people of is that sometimes that trans people writing on on Twitter or on social media are probably coming from a pace of fear and anxiety about the state of play of a trans rights in the moment and the fact that a lot of people are trying to legitimise and launder ideas that would hugely set trans people back in this country as just being, I have a legitimate concern or this is a valid point, I shouldn't be shouted down for making it, when essentially what people are saying might be something along the lines of, I think that trans people should be allowed to be booted out of public toilets if I don't agree that they should be there. Like, I mean, if, if that was the type of society we'd live in, it would make it almost impossible to be trans. Or they might be saying something like, I think that it's okay if there's a trans woman who's in a domestic abuse situation and she needs refuge because she has nowhere else to stay, that if she rings up a refuge and asks if they've got place for her, that refuge should be able to turn around and say, yeah, we do have a room, but we don't think you belong there. We're not going to welcome you into it. And we're going to keep that for somebody else. Good luck. People don't always spell out what exactly the real world implications of the positions they hold. But trans people can fill in the dots, trans people can see the effects. And so if you see trans trans person reacting fearfully or angrily, it might be because they recognize what's being said for what it is in a way that you can't. And I, I also think I am very meek, I am very polite, that's just the type of person I am, and I think it's often to my detriment. (laughs) I wish I was someone who could be a bit more forceful about things when the situation warrants it. So I think more harm than good can be done, frankly, by being very sort of nicely nicely about something that needs to be called out for what it is, if it's transphobic, if it based stereotypes or, or discriminates or expresses prejudice against someone. Like obviously there's ways of doing that, if someone's doing that inadvertently, perhaps doesn't realise the full implications of what they're saying, versus someone who's playing a game, who's part of an organised campaign to get rid of your rights, and knows exactly what they're doing. Trans people understand what the implications are of the code when others may mm. not understand those uh, implications, but actually it's a cover for bullying, and we need to recognise yeah. it as a, as a cover for bullying. And as allies... We wouldn't expect children in school to stand up against their bullies all the time without anybody else supporting them. And so as as allies of trans people, then we should be prepared to challenge bullies as well, to recognise when that bullying is taking place, to recognise when that code is being used and to provide support. How can we best be good allies? How can we help to challenge this bullying, do you think? I think the first step is you've got to know and you've got to understand what's going on, don't you? That you can't just sort of wander into this and think, I understand the transgender debate and here's my perspective on it. You've got to start with improving your own understanding and that has to come from listening to trans voices because one of the issues we have in the UK 
is that this is a conversation about trans people without trans people. Trans people are not writing in The Guardian or The Times or The Telegraph in these hundreds of articles that are being printed about us. We're not usually on the radio or on the TV. And we're definitely not in the House of Parliament or in the Senate. Like, we're not represented politically at all. And so you have to seek out trans voices. So some of the things that I would recommend people to do other than following trans accounts on Twitter and people can have a look for some. If people like to read, I would encourage people to get Sean Fay's new book, which is The Transgender Issue, which is really accessibly written and just is a nice explanation of the current context in the UK and the issues it creates for trans people. If reading's not your thing, I would encourage you to have a look at the Disclosure documentary, which is on Netflix, which looks at how trans people are portrayed and have been portrayed in the media. So there's lots of like TV and film stuff and it looks at films like Psycho and Silence of the Lambs and how that's generated. All these stereotypes that people sort of absorb and thinkingly, it's, it's really it's really interesting. At times, like it's quite funny at times it's quite touching but it's really really engaging watch so I'd recommend that and then um, yeah once you've got that knowledge then it's sort of yeah time to step up and I always think you want to be taking the lead of trans people like have a look at what groups exist like LGBT groups or trans groups that exist in your local communities like support groups and campaigners organizations and take their lead but make sure you use your voice because what happen, what's happening at the moment in the UK is that the vast majority of people I know are quite supportive of trans people and trans equality, don't really get what the debate is about and sort of stay out of it. And then the whole conversation gets dominated by this tiny minority of very, very angry and hostile voices. And so you've got to use your voice to counterbalance that. And in particular, your voice as someone who isn't trans kind of has special value because some people will just dismiss trans people and say, well, of course they're saying that, you know, they are the threat. Of course they deny that they're really a threat. And that's where I think people's voices are particularly important. In Wales, I'd encourage people to pay attention to Welsh Government's LGBT Action Plan and to listen to what um, campaigners and organisations are saying about that, because that is potential if it's done right to make a real tangible difference to some of the important issues that trans people are facing, which go way beyond this debate. You know, they, they're things like, how do we make sure that trans kids aren't getting bullied in school? How do we stop the fact that there is a two year waiting list for trans people to access gender identity healthcare in Wales under this, under this new system that's been built for us? And, and dealing with those questions, you know, how do we make sure that every trans person is able to walk down the street without getting shouted at, harassed or abused or made fun of? That's what trans people need. It's not this sort of fake debate that's being concocted about us. That's absolutely brilliant. You've given a very clear overview of the main issues and some fantastic advice as to how those of us who want to be more supportive of trans rights can help out and support the, the general cause. Diolch yn iawn, Crash, you've been a great guest and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Diolch yn I hope you've enjoyed this episode and if you have and you want to hear more, perhaps you will consider becoming a subscriber. To do that, please visit my Patreon page. I hope this podcast will get enough support for me to continue to produce it on a regular basis. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood Podcast. Dear Hulvald.